Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. I want to talk about war and its impact on the modern world. And I think it's a subject that we often feel rather uncomfortable with. We in the academic world and and we in societies that have been largely, but not entirely peaceful for the past half decade, tend to think of war as something that happens somewhere else, or tend to think of war as something that is an aberration, that it's a breakdown of the normal state of affairs, which is peace. And so I don't think we've always studied it and its relationship to society as we should have done. We've tended to have something called military history, which we put into a box and study as if it's something separate, and then we get back to studying what we think of as mainstream history. And I would argue that war in its various forms and various sorts of war have had a profound impact on societies, have forced them to develop or encouraged them to develop in certain ways, have prevented them from developing in other ways. And changes in society have also had a profound impact on war. Certain kinds of societies fight certain kinds of war. When you have societies in which power is concentrated in a feudal landowning class, it tends to be that landowning class that provides those who fight. And ordinary citizens or ordinary subjects in those worlds tend not to fight. And so what I want to do is look at that very intimate connection between war and society. It's a two-way connection. It's not just war affecting society, it's also society affecting war. It is a paradox, I think, of war, and it's an uncomfortable one, that war can bring dreadful, as we know, catastrophe and waste, but it can also bring often social changes, sometimes very beneficial social changes, and it can bring changes to the international arena. I think there is something in human nature that sometimes it takes a very big catastrophe for us to focus our attention on what we need to do to improve our societies and improve the ways in which different societies live and interact with each other. And so war has been, I think, throughout human history, both an engine of destruction, but also a stimulus to progress and to change. And again, I think this is something we're a bit uncomfortable with. And perhaps a final thing that we're uncomfortable with is that we sometimes find war very appealing. I mean, we all of us here, I think, have lived or are living at the moment in what are peaceable and peaceful societies. But I think there is an undeniable attraction of war. If you go into bookstores or if you go into game stores, you will see that some of the most popular books are about war, some of the most popular movies are about war, and certainly some of the most popular electronic games are about war. And we have, I think, very complicated feelings for very good reason about war. We fear it, we dislike what it does, to civilian societies, we dislike what it has done to our world, but I think we also have, I think, mixed feelings about it. We recognize that it can bring out the worst and most grotesque of human emotions, but it can also bring out noble emotions. We can bring out people who are prepared to sacrifice themselves for a cause or for each other. And so I think as we think about war, we should keep in mind that there's not just one way of looking at it. It is a complicated subject and a subject which I think we ought to be dealing with Not that I think we're going to necessarily find ourselves at war, but we should remember that there is a great deal and has been a great deal of war in the world since 1945. And I grew up in Canada, so we tended to think war ended in 1945. It was something that happened a long time ago. And I I suspect that Australians may think something the same. But of course, we have seen 
around the world a great many wars since 1945, a great many people killed in those wars, a great many people injured in those wars, a great many people displaced as a result of those wars. And there are wars in the world that go on today, not major wars between states at the moment, for which we should be very thankful, because such wars would involve weapons of enormous and almost unimaginable destructive power. But wars that continue in the Great Lakes region of Africa, for example, wars that continue without end in parts of the Middle East, in Yemen, in Afghanistan. And so wars is something, war is something that continues to be part of many societies, and I think that is why another reason why we need to consider it. What I want to do is look particularly at war in the modern world and how war has shaped and has been shaped by the modern world. And when I say modern world, because historians tend to think in terms of centuries rather than decades, I'm really looking at the period from the beginning of the 19th century to the present. The war that we knew in the 18th century before the present, the, the modern world, was a war that was fought usually by fairly small armies and fairly, fairly small navies. But already you could begin to see in the 18th century wars some of the features that were going to mark the war of the 19th century. And one of those things was a need for greater and greater organization. War is and has always been one of the most organized of all human activities. If you're going to fight a war, you have to get the people who are going to fight it. You have to organize them. You have to train them. It's not normal for people to want to go and risk their lives. And so you have to learn to train them how, in order that they will do such things. You have to provide them with the equipment. You have to provide them with the structure of organization. You have to provide them with the offices. You have to try and develop some kind of hierarchy that will make this body of people who have been trained to war do what they're meant to be doing. And you have to be able to provide them with food. You have to be able to provide them with things that will enable them to keep on fighting. And so war has always, from its very early stages, as far as we know, involved a high degree of organization. But by the 18th century, I think you could see that organization becoming more and more demanding. The spread of the European empires, for example, meant that navies became extremely important. And when you think of it, navies take a tremendous amount of organization, perhaps even more than land armies, because you have to build the ships, you have to train the people to operate those ships, you have to find the right sort of timber, you have to find the right sort of rope, you have to find the right sort of equipment, you have to make sure that they are seaworthy, you have to make sure that you know how to steer them, you have to make sure that you know how to navigate them. All of this takes a tremendous amount of organization and preparation. You have to have training facilities, you have to have the proper agents to buy the materials you need. If you buy timber that isn't right for shipbuilding, the ship is not going to work. If you buy rope that is rotten, your ship is not going to be capable of sailing. And so the development of the European empires began to demand, as did the wars in Europe itself, a higher degree of government organization, a higher degree of government organization and involvement, involvement in society, involvement in trying to get the right sort of people to ensure that your armies and navies were actually going to be effective. And what it meant, and this was already beginning to happen by the end of the 18th century, it meant more and more of the resources of society had to be drawn in for war. And there is an argument made by a number of historians that the growth of the modern state really is a product of war, that the need to mobilize your resources and your people for war, to ensure that those resources were being used as effectively as possible, and to get the financial resources that you needed to fight a war meant that governments became more elaborate, became more involved with society, became better at squeezing resources out of society.
But what really began to change from the beginning of the 19th century, and this change began to happen very rapidly on a very large scale, were two main developments. The first was the Industrial Revolution. The 19th century, starting in Europe but spreading very rapidly to the rest of the world, saw a revolution in production. It became possible to produce on a scale that was unimaginable before the use of steam power and before the standardization of production. It became possible to produce goods, it became possible to move those goods around the world thanks to the development of steamships and railways. The world became much more integrated, much more tightly connected through new means of communication, steamships, railways, but also the telegraph. You know, we think of the internet as something that has really transformed our world. But when you think of what the telegraph meant, that people were able, sitting in Melbourne, or sitting in Sydney, or sitting in Berlin, to get news from around the world almost instantaneously, this for people at, by the end of the 19th century was something absolutely miraculous. And it transformed the way in which they interacted with each other, and it transformed the way in which peoples in different parts of the world looked at themselves and looked at the world. The Industrial Revolution made it possible for societies to produce and consume on much greater scales than they'd ever done before. It made possible the transmission of information around the world. It made possible the movements of goods, of raw materials, and of peoples around the world. The 19th century was an age of tremendous globalization, particularly as it sped up towards the end of that century. And again, we tend to think we always invent everything. We think that this is the age of great globalization. But if you look at the period before 1914, it really was a globalized world, an extraordinary world. And it also became possible for people to move on a scale, which again, we, we are seeing again today. Think of the movements of people to the Americas, from Asia to different parts of the Antipodes, the Americas. You think of the tremendous movements of peoples around the world. It was truly a globalized age. What, of course, the Industrial Revolution and the accompanying scientific and technological revolutions also made possible was much more deadly war. We became, collectively, as societies, much better at killing each other. We produced weapons of much greater efficacy. We produced standardized weapons, and what that meant was that it was possible to turn out an awful lot more rifles, it was possible to repair them quickly, or field guns, because all the parts was standardized and so interchangeable. Whereas in the old days, a musket or a cannon would be handmade and took a long time to make and was enormously expensive to make, it now became possible to make much cheaper and much more efficacious weapons. Things like explosives improved, things like accuracy improved thanks to better metals, better explosives, and better ways of sighting the weapons. And so it became possible to build and equip much bigger armies, it also became possible to move those armies fast distances and to keep them in the field. What always limited war until the beginning of the 19th century or the part way through the 19th century was that if you had an army of, say, 50,000 men with all its accompanying baggage trains, with all its necessary horses, if you had it sitting anywhere, it would literally eat out the countryside around it and it would have to move on. There was no way of supplying armies. They had to feed off the land. Once they had fed off the land, once they'd consumed everything, it was like locusts. They had to move on or die. And so the size of armies you had and how long you could keep them anywhere was very much limited by the available resources, by the, particularly by the available foodstuffs. 
what the Industrial Revolution made possible was to put very large armies together, to clothe them in their uniforms, to give them the equipment they needed, to move them to wherever you wanted them to go, and then to keep them there, which is why wars got longer and much more deadly. Let me just give you a couple of examples that sort of illustrate this. In 1812, Napoleon took into Russia the biggest army, I think, that had ever been seen in Europe, some 600,000 men. And you probably know what happened to that army. It went into Russia, winter began to come, it didn't have the resources, finally Napoleon ordered a retreat. And out of some 600,000 men, I think less than 100,000 made it back into Europe. The rest starved or froze to death or simply were never heard of again. In 1870, the German Confederation waged war on France, and this was part of the German Wars of Unification, which resulted in the creation of Germany. In 1870, the Germans were able to put an army into the field against France of 1.2 million men and able to keep them there because of the changes in transportation and organization and production. And in 1914, when the First World War started, the German armies amounted to some 3 million men. And so from Napoleon's army of 600,000 in 1812, to the German armies, and that's only the German armies in 1914, of three million. You can see a tremendous increase in the war-making capacity. And it also became possible, of course, to kill much more efficiently. I mean, the old musket was notoriously inaccurate. You all know the expression, don't shoot till you see the whites of their eyes. It's an old expression, and people always wonder what it means. It meant that if you had one of these highly inaccurate muskets and you were a soldier, you probably shouldn't fire at the opposing side until you were close enough to be able to see them in the eye, like 100 yards away. If you fired any greater distance, you would probably miss them. And then, of course, you had to reload, and while you were doing that, they'd probably shoot you. And by, of course, the end of the century, rifles had come in, which could be loaded lying down, unlike the old muskets, which meant soldiers could be lying on the ground, much more difficult to see, often, of course, digging trenches or trench emplacements in front of them, and they had things like machine guns, which could kill on a very rapid scale indeed, and much more effective and long-range guns. And so thanks to the industrial and scientific and technological revolutions, war became much more deadly, much larger, and with the results that we've seen. But what also happened, and I think this was as important in a way, was there was a very important political shift. And this happened first in Europe, but it was going to happen elsewhere in the world. And that was the relationship between people who lived in a country and their own government began to change. And it changed partly, and I think largely as a result of the French Revolution. But the French Revolution was only expressing ideas that were there anyway. They were there in the American Revolution. They were there floating around Europe. That somehow the old order where people were subjects, where they had no say in their own government, they were subjects of an emperor, or an empress, they were subjects of a king or a queen, and it was not expected they would have any say in their own government, or only in a very few countries was it expected that people would have a say in their own government, and that was only usually a very few people. Britain had some form of constitutional representative government, but the franchise was tiny. It was less than 5% of all the adult males. And so people who lived in countries were not expected really to take an interest in what that country did. They weren't expected to have a view on what their own country did. If their country went to war, it was because the ruler or the rulers wanted to go to war. It was not because the people of that country had any say in the war, and, and therefore they felt they had no participation. 
what the French Revolution did, and its ideas, as I say, were there, and they were going to spread across Europe and eventually around the world, was shift that relationship so that you were no longer a subject, you were a citizen. And what that difference was, was that you were now part of your own country. You now had a say in your own government. You now helped to choose your own government. What it meant, however, was that you now had an obligation to your government. If you own the government, if you choose your government, if you are part of your own society, you see yourself as a citizen. I am a French citizen or a British citizen or an Australian or Canadian citizen. Once you see yourself as a citizen, you also have a corresponding obligation. The government now has a right to call upon you to defend your own society because you're part of it and it's part of you. And so what you begin to get, and this became very clear with the French Revolution, is a different attitude on the, the ordinary people in the country, the people who wouldn't have in the past had any interest or been expected to have any interest in the government of their own country. And what that meant was that they fought in a different way. And the first time this really, I think, became apparent was in 1792, when the French Revolution had only been going for three years, and it was very radical at, in this particular moment, and it was regarded with horror by governments around Europe who didn't want any such ideas, of course, spreading to their own governments. And the coalition of Austria and Prussia moved in on France, thinking, you know, we've got trained troops, the French army's fallen to pieces because of the revolution, we will go in and we'll sort them out. And there was this moment, the French government, in its panic, the army, the French armies were indeed in a mess because a lot of the officers had fled or been killed or executed. The French government called for something called a levée en masse. It said, everyone must come to the defense of France. You, you've got to help us. We are all being attacked. And there, was a series, there were a series of inconclusive battles on the frontiers. Not great victories, but enough to send the Austrians and the Prussians retreating. They hadn't seen soldiers like this who didn't behave like 18th century soldiers. 18th century soldiers were very disciplined. And they would march out in order and then they would fire when they were given the order. These soldiers rushed out. They didn't wait to see if they were going to be in danger. They rushed helter-skelter across the fields. And as one Austrian who watched this, he said it was like dealing with savage beasts. They didn't know when to stop. Um, you know, we, we expected them to stop and they just kept coming. And we had to retreat. We couldn't deal with such barbarians. So there was a very different type of soldier. And this meant that the French revolutionary armies, once they became organized again, and they did rapidly under the pressure of events become organized, were really formidable because you could do things with them. You could order them to attack desperate situations, which the ordinary type of old soldiers would not have done or would have done very reluctantly. They would have done it, but they would have probably had, had to have been driven into battle by their officers. You could also march French revolutionary armies at night because the old-style armies didn't dare march at night because their soldiers would take every opportunity to disappear. They'd, often, if they camped, they'd have to put guards around, not against the enemy, but to keep the soldiers from escaping. But with the French Revolutionary Armies, you could march them at night, you could expect them to march further and faster than any normal armies would march. And so they became a phenomenon. And eventually, and of course it carried first France, and then of course the, the, French Revolu the Revolutionary France, and then of course Napoleon carried France to the mastery of Europe. And it was partly thanks to this, very much largely thanks to these new style of armies. And eventually other countries began to have to adopt similar measures. You had reforms being made in countries like Prussia, eventually in Spain, where you got guerrilla war, where people, other rulers began to realize they were going to have to offer something to their own people if they expected them to fight and die 
for something called Spain or something called Prussia. And so what began to change was not just the technology and not just the social organization through the Industrial Revolution and other changes. What began to change also was the nature of those doing the fighting. And this was going to go on throughout the 19th century, partly because in more and more countries, people, more and more men at least, were getting the right to vote. And so more and more people were feeling this very direct connection with their own government. But there was also a spread of literacy. More and more people were learning to read and write. More and more newspapers were available. And the newspapers were getting cheaper and cheaper thanks to cheap newsprint that was coming in from countries like my own country, Canada. And so people were much more well-informed about what their governments were up to and what their countries were up to. And so you got a growth of something which a lot of rulers didn't like. It was called public opinion. Increasingly, they had to worry about what their own publics were thinking. And increasingly, what those publics were thinking, but not always. But often what they were thinking is, we would like our country to be even greater. And so you got the spread of a different type of society throughout the 19th century, a different type of attitude towards war. And of course, towards the end of the century, or middle and end of the century, you began to get a spread of nationalism. And this was very much tied to what had happened as a result of the French Revolution, very much tied to the spread of literacy and, and the spread of communications. But there was also the growth of a feeling that somehow if you live in a particular part of the world, you are different from people living across the river or across the mountains on the other side. You are French. You're attached to the French soil. You, there's something different about you. Or you're German. There's something different about you. You're not like your neighbors or you're Polish. Well, the Poles had a longer sense of their own nationalism. But nationalism is something which has often quite deep roots, but is really, in many ways, a 19th century phenomenon. You get people beginning increasingly to define themselves in terms of the nation they belong to. Whereas in the 18th or earlier centuries, they might have defined themselves by their religion, or by the village they lived in, or by the town they lived in, or by the ruler they, they happened to fall under. You now got people saying, I'm French or I'm German. And that became, I mean, it was, it was a matter of pride, and, and people liked to feel part of communities, but it also became a very important fact in the making of war, because you began to get people saying, we have to defend ourselves, we can't trust those people over there, they've always been different from us. And this, unfortunately, was fostered by people like me, by historians, by professors. We wrote often totally fake histories or, or very dubious histories, which claimed to argue there had always been something called the French people, or there had always been something called the German people. Um, very important document for people who argued like this, for example, was a very short little thing written by a Roman historian called Tacitus, called On Germania. And he said, there are these people who live north of the Rhine, and they're rather nice people, they're fairly simple, they live in villages, um, they don't have much culture. And he called them Germanes. He simply meant people who speak a type of language. But German scholars took this and he said, oh, they said Tacitus noticed, noticed that we existed. We've existed from Roman times. There's always been something called the German people. And this was tied in with ideas that were going around Europe at the time of social Darwinism. This was the misapplication of Darwin's theories to human societies. And Darwin argued that there were, and, and I think most people would still agree that he was right, there were species in the animal world or the insect world, or the world of, of birds, that were different from each other, clearly defined, and they had evolved over time. 
and they had fitted themselves to their habitat, and sometimes, quite often, they had natural enemies. They had natural predators that might um, try and eat them or, or wage, you know, push them out of, of their environments. These ideas were taken by a number of people and applied to human societies. And so you got, again, very learned people, professors at universities saying, oh, it's quite clear there is a German species and there is a French species. And there was a German professor who argued, you know, the German species, he said, has always been the most original in Europe. It's always invented things. It's always created things. And people pointed out to him, they said, well, actually, the French have created quite a lot. I mean, if you go to France, you see you know, quite a lot of cathedrals and you see palaces. And he said, oh, yes, he said. And this did cause him a little problem. But he then convinced himself that the people in France who had really done all the creative work were, in fact, German. <laughs> and the way he did this, he'd get on a bicycle and he'd go to France every summer. And he'd bicycle around and he'd look at statues of eminent French people, kings, jurists, people who built cathedrals, artists, and he'd look at them and he'd say, if you look at them, if you analyze them, they have got Teutonic features. And so he convinced himself that he'd look at a nose and he'd say, not French, really, it's not Gallic, it's Teutonic. And so the only people in France, he argued, who actually did anything useful were those who had German blood in them. And you got French, very learned French professors saying things that were very similar. You know, the Germans can't invent anything, they just imitate, they're not like the French at all. There's a wonderful book written by a sociologist, very eminent sociologist in Paris, and he said, you know, the problem with the Prussians in particular, who come from the north of Germany, the problem with the Prussians is they have no moral sense. And he said it's understandable, they live in a very flat country. <laughs> and so they don't see mountains and they don't see valleys, they don't see the distinction between good and bad. He said they can't help it, that's just the way they are. Now, these things we laugh at, and we should always remember this, you know, theories 50 years from now that we think are important, people will be laughing at. But people took these sorts of things seriously, and so you got people saying, you know, we are French, we can't really trust the Germans, we've never really been able to. If you look at history, if you look at their nature, we can't trust them. I and you got the Germans saying the same things about the French, or you got the Germans saying the same things about the Slavs. And one of Germany's great fears was that they shared a common border with Russia, because in those days there was no Poland, and they looked at this enormous country of Russia with huge quantities of people, which was industrializing and modernizing very fast, and they said, those people have always been a menace to us, we can't trust them. And so the nature of war and the way people are thinking about war is changing in the 19th century, partly, as I say, because of the changes in production and so social organization and technology, but also because of ideas. How we think about ourselves and how we think about war is enormously important. And the 19th century is a time when people begin to think of themselves and their societies in a very different way. And there were those who rightly became concerned about what was happening to war that war was becoming more deadly, but war was also becoming something that passions of ordinary people were much more engaged in. A lot of the generals didn't actually like this. The great German general, von Moltke, General Helmut von Moltke, who was the architect of the successful wars that created Germany in 1871, in his last public speech to the German Reichstag, warned he said, we are entering an era of the people's wars. He said, in the past, we had cabinet wars. Those were wars made for very specific aims by governments. Now, you can disapprove of them, 
but they had limits. He said people's wars have no limits. He said they could go on for five, six, or seven years. He said, woe to him who sets Europe alight, because he will have set something in motion that cannot be stopped. I mean, it was prophetic, I think, because in fact this was what was going to happen. And there were those who worried about this, that wars were now engaging so much in society and the capacity for war-making was now so great that something awful was going to happen. And there were warning signs that this was going to happen, that war was becoming on a bigger scale, more deadly and more difficult to stop. The American Civil War was a very good example of what happened when you got two societies pitted against each other. The Americans took more losses in their civil war than in all their other wars put together, more than in the First World War. If you add up the First World War, the Second World War, Korea, Vietnam, they lost more people in the civil war than they lost in all those wars put together. It was a dreadful war, and it was a war that showed the way warfare was going, because all those wonderful technological changes in the 19th century were making it a lot easier to defend a position than to attack it. And so if you dug yourself in, if you had your rifles, which could be loaded as you lay down, unlike the old muskets, if you had smokeless gunpowder, which they had by the middle of the 19th century, even if someone fired a rifle, you couldn't tell where it was coming from. I mean, in the old days, you'd see a puff of smoke and you think, that's where we need to shoot. Now you couldn't do that. And the losses, when the Civil War took place, when the Union troops tried to attack or when the Southern troops tried to attack, were absolutely huge. And European soldiers were aware of this. Soldiers from around the world came as observers to the American Civil War and they said, you know, something, this is getting pretty awful. But they explained it away. They said, well, it was the Americans. It was a civil war. Uh, they didn't, they're not true professional soldiers like soldiers in Europe. And what we need, and all the military academies did this, what we need is soldiers who are better motivated, who will attack more, and we'll simply have to accept more losses. They even had calculations for every one soldier defending a well-defended position, you'll need 10 soldiers to attack. As long as you get 10 times odds, you'll be fine. And you just have to let soldiers know they're going to be losing, we're going to be losing a lot of people, but if they're motivated, they won't mind. I mean, this, this was, our capacity as human beings to explain away things that we find uncomfortable is infinite, I think. And we just simply ignore the uncomfortable evidence. And there was a lot of ignoring of evidence in Europe in the late 19th century because there were other wars. The Franco-Prussian War, the war between the German Confederation and France between 1870 and 71, had really dreadful losses in the opening battles on the frontiers. And again, it was explained away because there was a clear victory. The German Confederation won, France lost, and so the losses somehow got explained away. There were wars between Turkey and Russia, wars in, the, in, the, in, the, in, in Africa, the British, Afri British war in South Africa. And then there was a very, very large-scale war between 1904 and 1905 between Russia and Japan. And the Russians lost, but in the course of losing, they inflicted terrible damage on the Japanese troops. The Russians were well defended. They were dug in in, in, in Manchuria. And when the Japanese troops attacked, they took frightful losses but they won. And so what the European observers said is it shows the Japanese had the right spirit and we will win because we will fight in the right way. European armies became very interested in psychology for obvious reasons. How do you motivate soldiers so they will take these terrible sorts of losses or see these terrible sorts of losses being taken? 
Every single major European army before the First World War in 1914 had only offensive plans. They were all going to go out and attack. They all somehow tried to explain away what they knew, I think, secretly was likely to happen, that they were going to have absolutely hideous losses, and they might well end up in a stalemate. And one of the great tragedies of the First World War was that the two sides were so evenly balanced that both sides were strong enough to prevent the other side from breaking through, but neither side was strong enough to break through against the other side. And that's why the war went on for four years and possibly could have gone on for five years. There were those who warned that war was becoming something that you should not enter in lightly and would, would possibly could end in stalemate. There was a Russian-Polish banker, Ivan Bloch, who had made a fortune building railways in Russia, and he was a financier. And he wrote a book of six volumes called The Future of War, in which he predicted something very much like what happened in the First World War. And he spent the rest of his life and his very considerable fortune in trying to publicize this and trying to make people aware of what might happen. And people said, the military said, what does he know? He's, he's, a, he's a financier, he's a civilian. He doesn't really understand war. And there was, of course, Alfred Nobel, a man who had made a fortune in explosives and felt a bit guilty about this. He once said, I wish I could invent a weapon of such frightful power that war would become obsolete. Um, but war wasn't becoming obsolete, and he gave a very large part of his fortune to the cause of peace. He funded the Nobel Peace Prize, which, of course, is still given. There was an English journalist called Norman Angel who wrote a very, very popular and persuasive book in which he argued, no one's going to be silly enough to do war now. It would be a stalemate. And anyway, European countries would all lose because European economies are now so tightly intertwined, there would be no point in fighting a war. And people said, isn't he right? Of course, people won't fight a war. And so you did have people pointing out to what might happen. And what you also had was a very considerable movement for peace. And this is something that often happens after great catastrophes, after great wars. People begin to think about, how can we avoid this in future? When the Napoleonic Wars ended, well, the wars of the French Revolution started in 1789, the Napoleonic Wars sudden, finally ended in 1815. And so you can see Europe was at war for almost 20 years, and the losses were enormous. When the Napoleonic Wars finally ended at the Congress of Vienna, people said, we've got to do something to try and prevent wars happening again. And war often does stimulate such thinking for obvious reasons. People think, how do we try and prevent something like this from happening again? Not everybody wants a war. Not everybody thinks war is wonderful. And so after the Napoleonic Wars, you did get an attempt made to try and build an international system of institutions or least agreements or understandings that would prevent war from happening. And there was something called the Concert of Europe, where the major powers worked with each other to try and dampen down potential conflicts. Now, they were conservative, and so they also wanted to dampen down revolution, but it was a way of maintaining the peace. And what you began to get also, as Europe became more prosperous and as Europeans felt that they were becoming more civilized, these were words they used about themselves, that they, they began to argue that war is not something we should be doing. War is something that we did in the past before we became so modern and so progressive and before we became so prosperous. Why can't we find other ways of settling disputes? And so in the course of the 19th century, you had a number of organizations, apart from the concept of Europe, appearing 
middle-class organizations, organizations of lawyers, organizations of parliamentarians, NGOs like the Red Cross, organizations devoted to trying to find other ways for human societies to interact with each other than through war. And there was quite a lot of hope as the 19th century wore on that something might be happening. So at the same time as you get the war-making capacity of Europe getting greater and greater and, and evidence that war is getting more deadly and passions such as nationalism becoming, I think, more deeply felt and more dangerous, what you also got were many attempts to bring war under control and prevent it. And so you began to get, for the first time, people using words like international. I mean, these were new words. The very word internationalism was not really used much until the time of the First World War. But it, it was a, there was a new way of thinking. We need to realize how deeply interconnected we all are now. And we need to try and understand that there are ways in which we can deal with each other and not resort to war. That war is something that we used to do that we shouldn't do anymore, um, partly because it's so dangerous, but partly also because we have become so sophisticated and it's not something we do. And so, apart from all these attempts at organizing and, and building international society, what you also got was the development of international law. And again, this was something new. The very notion of an international law had been around for a bit, but the idea that this was something you could develop and build on was something the 19th century really took to heart. Arbitration became something that had a great deal of popular support and a good deal of governmental support. And this was when two nations would have a dispute, someone would sink someone's ships or someone would have a, two nations would have a dispute over a piece of territory, over a colony. Instead of going to war, they would agree to go to an arbiter. And they would agree, and this was important, to be bound by the decisions of that arbitration. And a number of such arbitrations took place in the late 19th century, there was something like, I'm, I, I'm trying to remember, something like 300 arbitrations between the 1790s and 1914. More than half of those 300 arbitrations were after 1890. And so when Europeans looked, and others looked at what was happening, they thought they could see a trend. You know, we are moving in a direction of building, not yet international institutions like the UN, but we're building the frameworks and, and the agreed, agreed values and the agreed practices that will make it possible for the world to move in a more peaceful direction. And there were also two major disarmament conferences held. And again, this seemed hopeful. Um, the first one was held at The Hague in 1899, and the major powers all came, and they talked about how they... Well, there was a hope that they would abolish war, but they thought, all thought that was going way too far. But they talked about how they might try and limit war, and they came to some agreements on types of weapons to be used. And then in 1907, there was a second disarmament conference at The Hague, and they made a few more agreements on how you treat prisoners of war and how you behave in certain circumstances. And they decided to have a third conference in 1914, which, for obvious reasons, never took place. But these things seemed hopeful. I mean, it seemed possible that the world was moving in a direction where war would no longer be something that nations resorted to. Well, as we know, that didn't happen, and the First World War came, and its consequences were huge. And again, to go back to what I was saying at the beginning, these were paradoxical consequences. They were dreadful, and they led to tremendous destruction, loss of life. Nine million men were killed in the First World War. Perhaps twice as many again were wounded. And then towards the end of the war, the great influenza epidemic hit, 
which may or may not have been connected to the war, but certainly was spread by the movement of soldiers around the world. And it is possible that 50 million people died in that epidemic. The war destroyed societies, it destroyed organizations, it destroyed economies, it brought down empires. Russia had a revolution. I think it's quite possible Russia would not have had that revolution without the First World War. But, you know, and, and we, we wouldn't choose to bring social change in this way. The First World War also brought significant changes. It brought significant changes to the position of women and the position of labor in a number of countries. Before the First World War, it was said that people in the working class didn't really understand elections. Why should they have the vote? They didn't really participate. It was the same thing was said about women. Um, in England, it was argued there was no point giving women the vote because they'd do what their husbands and fathers told them, and so you'd get twice as many votes, but they'd all be in the same proportion. And anyway, women couldn't think about big issues because their minds weren't really fitted for it, and they weren't dealing, they weren't capable of dealing with you know, complicated things. Well, during the war, because there was such a demand for manpower, women did deal with complicated things. And women took office jobs, they worked in factories, they did all sorts of things which people thought they couldn't have done. And at the end of the war, even before the war ended, the British government gave women the vote. Not all women, only women over 30, because it was felt they'd be a bit more sensible. But they did rapidly give women um, the vote when they were 21. And the position of labor improved as well, because it was recognized that without all those people who'd worked in the mines and the factories and loading and unloading ships and working on the railways, the war effort couldn't have happened. And so war did bring, as it has often brought before, social change. And there were changes in medicine and changes in science, because war will often stimulate developments that do not seem possible in peacetime. And of course, at the end of the First World War, as the world looked at what that war had done, there was talk about building a different sort of world. And there were two very important competing visions. One was the vision of Lenin and his Bolsheviks in Moscow, that we will promise you peace in the future once we've had the revolution. Once we've got rid of all the old political structures, once the world is a proletarian world, then we will be at peace, because there will be no more borders. It's one of the things that the Marxists never quite got straight, that nationalism is perhaps even more strong um, an emotion than class warfare. And the borders did not disappear, but this is what they thought would happen. And the other vision was the vision that was promoted by Woodrow Wilson, the American president, that we can have a world where you don't have war, where nations belong to an organization, a league of nations, where they provide collective security for each other where they settle their disputes peacefully, where they work together to promote things like trade, the abolition of prostitution, the abolition of slavery. Um, you, they try and prevent the arms trade. They try and bring the world into a more peaceable relationship. And if anyone threatens one of those nations, nations in the League of Nations, the other nations will provide collective security for that particular nation. Aggressor nations will be punished. And this was a huge step forward, and it came out of the catastrophe of the First World War. It was something that a lot of people felt very hopeful about, and a number of other organizations spread, grew up around the League of Nations, organizations like the International Labour Organizations, various health organizations, statistical organizations, economic organizations, disarmament commissions. There really was a hope that for all the horrors of the First World War, humanity had finally learned a lesson. And there was a huge amount of public support for this. I mean, we now see the League of Nations as a failure. But people at the time didn't think it was. 
people in England had overwhelmingly supported the League of Nations. There was a League of Nations society, which a great many people in England joined. And it, this was true also in, in countries around the world. In England, they had a peace ballot organized by the League of Nations society. And they asked, they asked people to vote on what they thought about the League of Nations. Something like a half of all adult British people voted in this totally voluntary ballot. And they were asked, should Great Britain be a member of the League of Nations? 11 million said yes. 300,000 said no. It does say something, I think. Are you in favor, they asked, of an all-round reduction of armaments by international agreement? Yes, 10.5 million. No, 860,000. So I think it shows that there was tremendous public support for at least, if not outlawing war, trying to bring it to an end. Well, we know what happened. The Second World War broke out, and the League, I think, was discredited. But again, like all great catastrophes, we did think again about what the world should look like. And we thought again, after 1945 and even during the Second World War, about what sort of world we wanted. And the United Nations was founded very much in that spirit, as were the economic organizations of the Breton Woods organization, which were an attempt to link the world's economies so that they would not compete with each other, that they would integrate with each other, that the damaging tariffs that were done and, and trade protection that was done in the, in the 1930s would not happen again. And so again, I think, out of the great catastrophe grew an attempt to build a better world. And again, you could argue, and again, you wouldn't choose to do it in this way, that domestic society changed as well, that people got rights as a result of the Second World War that they would not have had before. There were huge advances in science and technology. We're still dealing with these paradoxes of war. We're still trying to find ways of improving our societies without the pressure of war. We don't choose to have wars in order to make things better in our societies. We would much, I think, most of us prefer to avoid war. I think it is more important than ever now that we think about this because our capacity to do destruction is now much, much greater than it was in 1914 or 1939. The capacity we now have to destroy human civilization on a very large scale is gigantic. And it's not just nuclear weapons, it's the other types of weapons, it's the chemical weapons, the biological weapons, and they're new frontiers as there always seem to be opening up in war. And the new frontier, one of the new frontiers is cyber war. And this is something that is giving many governments, I think, sleepless nights and their military sleepless nights because the capacity to launch cyber attacks on each other and make it impossible for us to operate our societies is now very large indeed. And the danger is, of course, cyber attacks can always get out of control. We depend now so much on these electronic networks that sustain us, and we depend so much on the use of electronics and increasingly powerful and increasingly small computers to make our societies work, that the possibility of a, of a cyber attack is now something we need to take very seriously. And it's already been happening. It happened in Estonia, where they had a huge <laughs> denial of service attack, which seems to have emanated from Russia although the Russians, of course, denied any knowledge of it. And it did make it almost impossible for the society in that very small country to function. Um, radios didn't work, telephones didn't work, communications didn't work, um, electricity didn't work. And these, these are now the sorts of things that we need to worry about. And so I will end as I started 
saying that I think we really, really do need to think about war. We need to try and understand it. We need to try and understand it, not necessarily to wage it, but to try and understand it in order to prevent it, or at least to try and keep it from getting out of control, which is always very difficult indeed. So on that very cheerful note, I will end. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.